0: Welcome to Ignite Radio Live. What follows is another impactful presentation at a Kingdom Builder Belief and Beverage Night. Kingdom Builders are parishioners and pastors committed to the Kingdom more fully coming alive within us and through us. We are moved by Jesus' challenge of the Lord's Prayer. He would not have asked us to pray, Thy Kingdom Come, without providing the means to fulfill it. If you are moved to be united with a growing number more fully engaging in missionary Catholicism, find out more at MassImpact.us and click on the tab that says Kingdom Builders. If you would like to hear other engaging and challenging programs, please go to our podcast site at IgniteRadioLive.com. God bless
1: you. I want to introduce our guest tonight. Um... There's that great passage in Scripture that speaks about swords sharpening swords. In, uh, in brother lexicon, that's brothers arguing with brothers, at least when I grew up. And Nathan was uh, a gift to me in that regard. He is my younger brother. We have uh, five other brothers and a youngest sister, so six boys and a girl. And we could tell you a lot of funny stories about that. But you know, when you're younger, you know, you argue about stupid things like which color is better. Of course, I was always right. I picked blue, and I think he picked green or something. And then as you got a little older, you know, it was like which superhero could take on which superhero. I had Superman, come on. Superman against Spider Man, I mean there's really no contest. Later on, as we, as we uh, navigated through conversion, as we navigated through choosing Christ more fully in a faith-filled Catholic family, let's face it, we were fighting against an MTV culture. My parents were ill-equipped. You guys know the story. It doesn't matter how Catholic it was. Um, we still had to face a lot of that, and our family had experienced pretty much all of those challenges around us. Um, It's a battle. It's a daily battle. We're still working it out. Later on, uh, my brother Nathan um, followed me at Miami of Ohio. We were very active in the pro-life group there. It was a bonding thing for him and me and a lot of good fruit. You may have heard of Eric Sammons, who's uh, author speaker is uh, really in the beginning of his new book, The Old Evangelization, is a new book that Eric has out in the very beginning. Just one line, I devote this to Nathan Slater, to whom I owe my Catholic faith because Eric was not Catholic, a very informed, solid evangelical thinker. And uh, it was their roommate ship that, and the debates and the arguments and sword sharpening swords that resulted in that. The argument later on grew to kind of funny things as we even, this is a good uh, message to I think me and Nathan as we've learned, C.S. Lewis talks about it a lot in screw tape letters that the way Satan attacks faithful believers are things like spiritual narcissism, where we derive our value Not in who we are in Christ, but the good things we can accomplish or what we know uh, intellectually or our spiritual works. And that will be a challenge to the day we die. And just to temper that a little bit, so Nathan tells me three years ago, again, the distinguished University of Hillsdale, Hilltill College, I guess you're not a university. So they had a course on Iron Maiden with different professors who, because there's a lot of mythology there and truthfulness, there's a lot of thoughtfulness, and we never thought that we'd be going back to our Eddie Van Halen sticks, Van Halen, Foreigner, Rush. If I knew scripture as well as I knew rock and roll, I, I'd, I'd be much further ahead in my faith life. But anyway, so a course on Iron Maiden, and he taught a, a one of the class classes on that, and then played the song with his son, which was very, very cool. So. Anyways, blessed to have sword sharpening swords. If you've been around me and in a culture, it it, it can be a good thing. And I think as we're learning, even in this democracy, it is so important that beyond where somebody stands, that we can define a place where we can have meaningful exchanges of ideas and, dare I say, argue with respect. I think we've lost a lot of that capacity. And I think for us as believers, that is just an important thing to ask hard hitting, edgy questions. And that's probably a big reason why we want to do these belief and beverages nights, is to have a speaker who's going to provoke us. We don't need to hear things necessarily that we already know. I want him to challenge us. I'm going to reach in deep and kind of identify maybe with some things that maybe not in a big scale are affecting us, but in our roots are part of our culture and affecting the way we think as husbands and wives and families, this idea of romance and domesticity. But um, I'm extraordinarily, proud and blessed to have Nathan as my brother and uh, he and his family that are just a tremendous witness to us. Um, so with no further ado, my brother Professor Nathan of Philosophy and Religion, Hillsdale College. Thank you for being with us. Uh, uh, just, just to make
2: this clear, yeah, we did this uh, Iron Maiden set, which uh, a student who um, graduated from Hillsdale College and then clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court uh, became Catholic, and when he was a undergraduate, he and his wife we had him for dinner, and uh, we don't this doesn't often happen, but it did happen. He was he was uh, a junior, and um, I think I served him a beer, maybe two, and we were sitting in front of the fire, and we started talking about the music we liked, and then we got out our guitars, and before we knew it, it was you know, two in the morning. We were singing just bad 80s music on the guitars and uh, later he and his wife converted to Catholicism. They asked Elizabeth and I to be their sponsors uh, into the church and then he uh, sent me this just wanted to give me his Les Paul guitar which is a beautiful black electric guitar. Uh, If you know anything about guitars that's like the primo guitar. I was not worthy I didn't play electric guitar so this was my chance to actually play Ryan's guitar. So I chose this song from this heavy metal band from the 80s. But what I wanted to say is that uh, the the lyrics to that song were written by G.K. Chesterton, Um, and so the name of the song is Revelations. So um, it was a Christian song, at least I (laughs) tried to make it work out that way. Uh, It's really an honor for me to be here uh, with you. I'm not worthy, Um, I'm really in awe of your beautiful families and the great work you're doing here. So, I wrote a piece, some of you may have seen it. If you didn't read it, fine. But uh, the piece was called The Romance of Domesticity. And the basic idea is something like this. Um, Flannery O'Connor is, do you know who Flannery O'Connor is? Okay, Flannery O'Connor, if you don't know about her, you should, she is, She herself uh, was a, a great Catholic American, southern, from the American South, from Georgia, Catholic novelist. Um, has a, a wonderful story. She's a wonderful storyteller. She died of lupus, but she just had a wonderful Catholic literary mind. And she made a remark in a talk she gave in which she said she observed that uh, obscenity and sentimentality always appear together in a culture because they're actually two sides of the same coin. I just want you to think about that because that really struck me when I first read that. Like the, she, she said they both are doing the same thing which is abstracting or isolating some good from the total reality of which it is a part. So when we look at our culture what we see is pervasive obscenity, right? We, we have this pornographic culture and it's an epidemic. We're rightly worried about it. We should be. It should have all our attention, not all of it, but it should be on our, our radar. Um, but we also have pervasive sentimentality in our culture. Um, I would say that sort of a romantic sensibility pervades our culture. It's like pornography or Disney seem to be your two options. And my view is that maybe we're not sensitive enough to that sentimentality as a disorder. Um, What I'm going to call romanticism in our culture, maybe we're not sufficiently sensitive to the kind of harms that Romanticism could cause to us, the dangers of it. In fact, I think, and so here's where you know a little bit of a challenge is, it, it, arguably Christians have unwittingly embraced Romanticism as, a, as, as what they think is an antidote to the obscene pornographic culture. And maybe that's done some harm. If we have a virtue of say chastity to counteract obscenity, what's the virtue that would counteract Romanticism? You're wondering what do you mean by Romanticism, I'll say it more in a moment. Um, but um, let me just say this, that um, it's, it's arguable that Romanticism is more dangerous than obscenity. Uh, here's why. Um, Think about the ills we have in our culture. Uh, Divorce, addiction, suicide, infidelity, are those caused by obscenity, are they caused by pornography, are they caused by romanticism? I'd argue the latter. And I'll say one thing further about that and it's that uh, pornography, can't hide what it is. It declares itself. It's ugly. But the thing about romanticism is that it can easily fool us because it can mask itself as part of what is truly good in our nature. Our aspirations for what's beautiful and what's high and what's true can easily mask itself in a romantic way so that it can work its way in in ways that obscenity cannot. Now I say all of this um, because I will often describe myself as a recovering romantic. Um, I know this from experience is my point. So I think about what I was like in high school and I was just deeply restless and unsettled. And in fact I'd say all of us were. It's a little strange. the Schleter boys were not just wild, but we were unsettled. Uh, I hated to be home. I'm, I, I want to tell you, my, my parents, if you've met Bernie and Judy, some of you may have met them, they're really pretty amazing people. They're married, they're Catholic, they're devout. We prayed as a family growing up. Uh, so that wasn't lacking. Um, but I, I did not want to be home. I wanted to be... I was in, I was restless and I was in love with exciting, dramatic experiences. That's what I loved. I wanted to be at the parties, I wanted to be at the center of the parties. I loved music, okay, music was a big part of this. I was deeply moved by the music of the 80s, 70s and 80s, classic rock. I mean, it was almost a religious experience for me, now you have to understand also, that I uh, kept my faith this whole time. I was very serious about my faith, um, but the expression of that faith, as I had learned, it was largely through um, what I would call charismatic Catholic experiences. Now, I'm not ungrateful to those, I, uh, those experiences that I had. Uh, for all I know, those moments saved me, but at a certain point, I didn't know how to integrate the emotional highs. I mean, this, this was interesting that that gospel was read because on the, the, you know, the transfiguration happens, but of course, why, why is it here in Lent? Why is that reading on the transfiguration right here in Lent? Because uh, Christ is preparing those uh, apostles for the crucifixion. He's trying to give them some vision of this beautiful picture so that they won't lose hope when they see the Ugliness of the, cruci- the passion and suffering of Christ. So both of those are part of that Christian experience. But I largely knew the transfiguration type experiences. The retreat weekends that I went on were transfig- you know, they were transfiguration experiences. They were highs of deep emotional sort of conversion, expression. But I didn't know I'm just saying I became very attached to those. And I didn't know how to not be in that state. And and the the factor I haven't mentioned here yet is girls. So I loved girls, okay? Um, And not in an unchaste way. I mean it it was unchaste I think in the sentimental way, but but not in the obscene way, which is to say I wasn't perfectly chaste. I I was a virgin when I got married, okay? So that was not the issue. I had dramatic relationships one after another and they had a pattern to them. So I had this dramatic faith, I had my music and these girls and I was restless in my interior life and this reached a kind of um, climax, if you will, when I got into graduate school and I met a girl, she's a Steubenville graduate and she was beautiful, she was a nurse. And I was just thought, "I need to marry her. That's just how my passions went. I need to marry her and the the relationship proceeded very quickly, and we got engaged very quickly and Then, some ways into that relationship, I just started seeing you know danger signs for how this relationship would work out. uh Her parents were divorced there were issues there um and I had just sort of acted on this sort of passionate impulsiveness that I'd had. Um, and just to make a long story short, she, uh, she sensed the restlessness in Anaïs here and she ended the engagement, offered me the ring back, um, which I accepted, um, and that was the most deeply painful experience of my life. Um, I went home, back to my dorm room, and I just lay on the floor for two days. I, I, it was just, uh, it, people get divorced, and I'm just so thankful that it wasn't a divorce, right? That, that it was just a broken engagement uh, that could be that painful. And what I saw, and I, by the way, I couldn't get off the floor. Like that, that was the experience. I just could not, I was on the bed and the bed was too soft. I needed to lie on the floor. And I just lay there and it was just an amazing experience because it was just the experience of God just telling me, look what you are. Like you did this. You have just been like this your whole life. You've not settled into me, you've not learned to pray. You've not learned to uh, to, to rest in me and to uh, live in reality. Okay, so uh, there it is. When I lay on that floor, uh, there was a, a kind of deep conversion that happened, and I it was almost like a resurrection. when I got up. I I, I was in deep pain, and God was still working in me, and. So it was at that point, and I didn't have any of the mental concepts that I have now to make sense of it, but that began a kind of sensitivity in me to what was going on here, what, what happened to me. And at, in graduate school where I was, we read a lot of fiction, literature, it was a philosophy, religion, politics program, so I just started noticing. Uh, a lot of things in the things that I was reading that I had not noticed before. Noticing things in the music that I was listening to. Uh, Noticing uh, that I needed quieter forms of prayer. Um, Again, this is a conversation we can have uh, about the spiritual life and prayer. I'm happy to have those. What is romanticism? Okay, trying to get around to that. What are you talking about? Well, uh, let's just say that um, we have emotions. Those are gifts from God and our emotions are directed towards goods. They have goods as objects to which they are directed. Romanticism um, is when we uh, enjoy the passion for its own sake more than the good to which the passion is directed. Okay, that's one way to describe romanticism. Uh, An easy way to describe it is if you've ever been in love, if you've ever felt the experience of being swept off your feet, and the, the, what does that feel like? It's a feeling of transcendence, of being lifted out of yourself, of being lifted out of the ordinary things that are around you. Everything gets changed and, uh, and transformed. And, um, and we feel, it's almost a religious experience. You feel like uh, it gives you permission to make decisions. And, and if you're in pain or suffering, that experience can be particularly attractive, right? To to sort of lift you out of, I mean this is the thing about romanticism is that it really does uh, tempt us to kind of escape from the ordinary boredom or sufferings or death or finitude that are around us. So romanticism um, is is an indulging and enjoyment of that passion for its own sake. Now let me just say, That why romanticism is attractive is because it feeds off of two very good things in our nature. Uh, One of them is that God made us for happiness, right? He made us for infinite happiness. He created that in us, that longing, that desire for happiness. That's something good God gave to us. Uh, I think what romanticism does, though, it's a very slight, nuanced difference. But I think romanticism is a perversion of that desire for happiness. I think it perverts it. So I, I describe Romanticism as a, as a kind of heresy. Every heresy you know is always characterized by taking a partial truth and ignoring all the other truths around it and making it the one truth, excluding the others. And Romanticism will take these, a partial truth like that and make it the whole truth. So the other partial truth involved with Romanticism that I think is hugely important is that it's always fed by an imagined ideal. So it's bound up with idealism. And idealism is part of our nature. We, imagine trying to act as a human being without having any ideals. Is human action even imaginable without having in your mind's eye some picture of what you want your family to be like, what you want your job to be like, what you want your, 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 your home to be like. We lived, through, we lived through imagined ideals to some degree. Romanticism involves idealism. A kind of beautiful ideal before us that attracts our will, but gives, a, but gives us a kind of we can escape into that ideal. And, it, and, and, and so there's the danger of romanticism is a, is a danger of our a temptation to have a kind of escapism into the ideal world and to do that because we're not ready and willing to deal with that world around us. I actually think I'll say you know, I'll say some things. Perhaps that'll be a little controversial. I probably already have. Um, I think Christianity can be abused as a kind of romanticism. I, th- I think it's very easy to um, uh, to pretend that the motives we're doing are Christian motives when maybe they are a form of escape from dealing with a difficult situation, difficult child, a difficult marriage, a difficult other thing. We can describe it in terms of this very big ideal that we're working for and justify it to ourselves. Um, So what are some expressions of this romanticism in our culture? I'll just go through a few of the expressions and then what to do. I'll just say a few things about that and then I'll be done. Um, The most obvious expression is obviously romantic love. It's really interesting when you study history of literature and philosophy that before the 18th century romantic feeling was an illness. It was thought of as an illness. Shakespeare makes fun of it. It's so fun when he has a character that's in love and everyone around that character knows that that person's out of their mind. And people play tricks on them. Um, so you know, the, 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 the great works of literature, Homer, Virgil does it so amazingly well, and maybe I'll say a word about Virgil, Shakespeare. Um, they see the perversion of this pattern. Here's evidence of this. Ask my students, uh, tell me like a great work of you know, love and literature, Romeo and Juliet. How'd that end? <laughs> Alright, they, they kill themselves. Give, give me another one. Uh, Troilus and Cressida. Okay, great one. How'd that end? Oh, they kill themselves. Um, uh, you, you go through literature. Uh, Aeneas and Dido in, in Virgil's Aeneid. Well, she kills herself. He gets away. Uh, why are these lovers dying or killing themselves? Like, what, What's the pattern there? That's a clue because I think it's just utterly clear that Americans idolize romantic love. Mm -hmm. We do. Something flipped. We think, that's love. Every teenager thinks that's love. Every teenager longs to be in love and to marry the one that they love. And that's a slight problem. What do we, how do we deal with that, how do we appropriate that exactly? I I think it's a real question. One of the great books I read, I'm going to get intellectual on you for a moment, so bear with me. But one of, the, one, of, one of my favorite books is called Love in the Western World. It's by um, a philosopher, historian, French. Of course, French are very interested in matters of love, Denis de Rougemont. So he writes this book called Love in the Western World. It's a famous book, uh, early 20th century. And it's a famous thesis. And what he argues is that romantic love uh, first appeared in southern France in the, thir- in the 12th century in the Languedoc region of France with, with a group of Albigensians. Uh, Albigensians were heretics, they were Gnostic heretics. They thought the body was evil, they thought marriage was evil. St. Dominic goes to preach to the Albigensians. That'll tell you a little bit, like that's his apostolate. Uh, They don't believe in the Eucharist, right, because the body is evil, how could God take a body? But that is where the courtly poetry originates. And so de Rougemont argues that, uh, that's where romantic love is first celebrated and what were the features of it? They were, they, were, uh, they were preoccupied with purity. right? Purity from the body, because they thought the body was dirty and sinful. It had fallen away from God. And so, romantic desire was a way to lift them out and elevate them from contact with this finite, dirty, desiring body that they had. And ultimately, inside that desire was a desire to be one with God, Yes, but away from that bad body. So that's arguably what's going on inside. And so in all the fiction, the romantic desire requires an obstacle. There's always an obstacle there to keep the desire going. Because once you like get married, then it gets boring. <laughs> uh, this is video uh Okay, that's kind of a joke. Uh, but um, but that, that 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 is at least. That, that is at least that is at least a caricature that some people say happens um uh that this is kind of a pattern uh, uh we it was all romance when we were dating and then we got married right and what you know what happened there read about that. I've read about that exactly. I've heard that this happens
3: <laughs>
2: honeymoon is over uh how do you make that happen? okay it's a whole other story, but not independent of what I'm talking about, which is. Just to be aware that um, don't our pop, doesn't our pop music, don't, don't, our, don't the movies, if they're not obscene, they're filling our imaginations with an ideal of romantic desire being the, the thing to be sought after. And I think that's problematic. But, what, but it's not just love that, it, it, that this gets expressed as. Think about how the economy works. advertising works. Advertisers are experts in manipulating romantic desire. What do they do? They create beautiful images and those are powerful, right? Think about part, I mean this is the other thing about this talk which to me is just so hugely important is that we're not sufficiently aware, I don't think, of how much our imaginations order our desires how much our actions are filtered through our imaginations and how we carry in our imaginations tacitly or explicitly pictures, scripts, narratives, through which we desire the things around us. And who, how those imaginations get created? If you are listening to the pop music and watching these movies, uh, I'm sorry, I was off of those, I was on the, uh, the advertisers, right? The advertisers are creating artificially inducing these sort of ideals, these beautiful pictures and what do they elicit from us? A desire not to be ourselves, to be deeply dissatisfied with ourselves. You can be like this person, right? Suddenly it, elic- it elicits this longing and restlessness in us to not be ourselves. Uh, not only that, you can be someone else and you can buy your way into it. That's, that's the promise, right? You just, we, we can buy other selves so people are exploiting this faculty of the imagination in a romantic way, I think, pervasively in our culture, in deeply problematic and arguably perverse ways that affects our children, I think, friendships. Are, we're, we're prone to it, I'm prone to it. Um, there's another effect of romantic desire. Um, a third one uh, I call itinerancy. They're all connected, these are all connected to each other. Um, it's this idea, uh, um, that you, happiness is always somewhere else. There's always a better option somewhere. Like the options are always there. A different job, I can I get that better job. I'll have to move, go there. If I could get a better job than that. Move somewhere else. Uh, maybe a better friend, maybe a better spouse. Maybe a better uh, life you can recreate somewhere. Uh, the, the, there's a way in which romantic desire is constantly pulling us from home. Uh, which is why I I, I entitled my article The Romance of Domesticity, right? Because that's the thing is what romanticism is always pulling us away from our home, the home in our hearts, the home in our faith, our physical homes to some imagined ideal somewhere that's going to promise us uh, happiness. Um, I I think suicide is bound up with this. I think drug addiction is bound up with this in in a very deep way. Um, I'm going to suggest even that... Uh, pornography is bound up with this because if you talk to people who do counseling on uh, pornography addiction what they will tell you is that in the majority of cases it's not a matter of just desire like most of the cases uh, those who are addicted to it are medicating they're medicating because they're afraid of a relationship they're insecure they're they are stressed. They're stressed. They're they're escaping from something else, and they're finding a kind of medication there. And what does pornography do? But create a fantasy world in which it's perfectly safe, and you can enter into that. Um, so this is a powerful thing, I think, a powerful force in our culture, and a pervasive force in our culture. And I don't think that Christians are sufficiently aware of it. Because we think, oh, romanticism, purity, uh, great. That's better than the obscenity that's out there. Um, I'm tempted to say a word about purity. Um, I teach the theology of the body uh, at Hillsdale College. I've done it uh, five times over the last five or six years. It's really been eye-opening. Uh, my, I've had great, large classes of students they are so interested in the, in the subject. And they, they feel so deprived of guidance and instruction on just dating, courtship, interaction, sexuality, marriage. They see in their own parents' marriages that have all kinds of problems. And so it's been really eye-opening for me. Um, I've had a number of couples who, um, in three of the cases, they were not Catholic couples, okay? They They were Protestant couples. Where the women were taught purity, purity, purity and the wedding night was just utterly traumatizing. Like they did not know what was happening. And you know, a year later they were still traumatized. You know, I'm dirty now, I was pure, now I'm dirty. And I don't know how I'm supposed to like get from dirty to purity, I don't know how to make those fit together. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I, I think that what we need to think about is um, how to, uh, well, so, so the ultimate solution to this, obviously, is really thinking about the incarnation. Um, you've got the transfiguration and the cross. like Those are both part of the Christian story. The infinite God becomes man in a homely stable with animals. He comes into this lowly, humble circumstance to sanctify us. And he takes on human flesh. So human flesh is not... Uh, dirty or impure or anything else. And so, how do we appropriate that? How do we really appropriate that? Um, So I I wrote down some things. I don't know how helpful they'll be. They're probably things you're already doing. Who am I to give advice to you people with 10 kids? Uh, Don't
3: forget the
2: two Harleys. And the two Harleys, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think it'd be easier to raise kids than Harleys. I mean, the, the beautiful thing about marriage in the Catholic tradition is this. From one angle, it is the image of God's love for his church. You, you don't have a better image in Scripture. That's what St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Uh, this, this is the great mystery. And so, we talk about our own faith as being a sort of betrothed love. So marriage is really elevated. And then Christ says, yeah, but there won't be any marriage in heaven. Uh, you know, it's not happening anymore. The so students like, what? Are be married in heaven anymore? Uh, no, he won't. But it'll be okay. Um, so there's a depreciation of marriage, and that seems to me to kind of hit the thing like to 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 both see it for what it is, and see it for what it is, and it isn't. Okay. So, so we need to have a sense of humor about our bodies and about marriage. I think somehow we need to convey that to our kids. That's my opinion. C.S. Lewis in the Four Loves says. Uh, Our bodies are God's practical joke for our salvation. Like no one can take this body too seriously without a little bit of humor. And so, you know, give the ideal, but we need to be, I guess what I'm saying here is be careful about counteracting the worst in our society with a kind of idealism that's kind of false to the goodness of that created order and that created reality. Okay. Consumerism, obviously, Um, how are we thinking about the things we buy? Our attractions to the things we buy? What steps do we have to not be consumerist? Uh, Do we make things for ourselves? Uh, How often are we trying to fix things ourselves? Uh, We didn't do that in my house growing up. Uh, It's it's pretty amazing the things uh, I've had to teach myself to do. Now I get my 18 year old son to do it all for me and it's been really great. (laughs) But uh, how do we resist that really? I, I think uh, there are always things that we can do. Um, do we love our homes? I mean, I, I was talking to a friend last night, he said it's just hard to be home. I come from my wor- work and the kids are just wild and it's hard and it is hard sometimes. Um, so how do we figure out how to so, to, to bring peace and and, and, and beauty even to the chaos for some of us. Some, some homes are perfect and they don't have that chaos, but ours is very loud and chaotic. How do we beautify that? Um, and I do mean beautified actually. Um, uh, I learned a lot from my wife's family. Um, she's one of seven, I'm one of seven. We were wild. They were not wild. They seemed to love being home. That was the strangest thing when I first went there. You guys like being home, yeah? And, and then, and then I saw why they loved being home because it was so beautiful to be home. There was music, there was uh, there was artwork, there were you know beautiful things on the wall. There were good conversations, good books, good conversations, and uh, that that's when I sort of realized you know it's not enough to sort of isolate your kids from the bad in the culture. You got to provide, not just prevent. You got to provide good, not just pull them out of the bad stuff. I When when people ask me about parenting, I say, two strategies, you can insulate or inoculate. And inoculate, of course, you know what happens in inoculation, you introduce a little bit of the poison, so your body builds up an immune system so it can respond to it. I'm not saying introduce poison into your house, but there needs to be kind of the freedom where some of that poison can get in a little bit so they can get an immune system to deal with it. If you're just isolating, um, I think there's trouble. Um beware of social media uh more I, I just so often Elizabeth can talk about this more than I can, but you know the mommy blogs uh, depressed moms that are just not as perfect as a curated mom who has beautiful black and white photographs of you know everything on her house that she's of course only posting those ones uh, I, I, I love uh what 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 is uh Simcha Fisher's name of her book on NFP. It's like the, the Sinner's Guide uh, to Natural Family Planning. This is for us sinners, right? The rest of you read a different book. Um, she, she's always, uh, so here's the thing, about, if you know Simcha Fisher, do you know her? She used to write in um, National Catholic Register and some other places. So she, she's a Catholic mom with nine kids or something. And she's got a pretty cynical edge. It's funny, it's a little cynical. But you learn her history, and she was super traditionalist when she got married, and it burned her out. She was very depressed. It was very difficult. And so now she's just trying to help moms navigate that. Uh, Joni Mitchell, who's one of my favorite artists of all, if I'd known her in high school it might have helped me, Uh, but she's got a great line in one of her songs. all romantics meet, meet the same fate. Cynical and drunk and boring someone in some old cafe. Uh, uh, the, the point being here that cynicism and romanticism are kind of connected. Like people who are like really cynical are often cynical because they're so romantic they can't handle it. Uh, they've just, they got to be cynical because if they let, start hoping and get a little confident, then their ideals are going to get like ruined. So how do we... Uh, uh, You've got to be careful about those curated images and the social media, I think, is really uh, difficult. So, uh, above all, obviously, uh, prayer is hugely important. I think the sacramental life of the church, I mean, prayer is great, but so great going to confession and Eucharistic adoration where you're you're with the concrete physical things of the church that God's grace is working in uh, are great consolations. So... um, so there it is. Um. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nathan. And we will take questions. And I'm going to be a little bit of a Catholic Donahue, just so we can get this recorded. Walt has his hand up behind. He him, does. Walt, hold on a second, buddy.
4: So um, when we when we started parenting, we had my wife and I had no idea how to discipline, no clue whatsoever, and. We didn't know there was really anything wrong because we were around a multitude of families at church whose kids were also psychos, for lack of a better word. No discipline, okay? And um, it, was, it was actually very, very strong Protestant friends that showed us that if you actually love being with your children, which would also coincide with actually loving to be at home, right? So if you walk, if you walk in your door at home and you walk into chaos, you're gonna wanna go right back to work. If you walk in your home and there's discipline and there's order, and I'm not talking about following the rules, stand up straight military, right, but a joyful order, the only way that actually comes about is consistent discipline. And I would argue, actually, in the Catholic Church, it's an, it's an epic disaster. It's an epic disaster. And there are actually no role models, very few, I should say. No is not a fair thing to say. Very few role models that are teaching that by the example of their families. And uh, so I'm very, very thankful for... Um, um, our, our, our Protestant friends, actually, that, that showed us how to do that and, and, um, in a beautiful way, in a, in a holy and godly way. And um, I'm seeing more families do that. But I, I think the reason in today's society that so many parents are stopping at two or three, I think the fakeness is, well, I can't afford college for them, and I can't afford a car for them. I think the reality is they do not enjoy being parents. And I think the cold hard truth is is because they do not know how to raise their children. So they're doing everything they can to cope with their children. Um, and you talk about Disney, it's so interesting. I just had a conversation with a, a very good friend of mine at work. And he said, "He said, what's your problem with Disney? And I said, well, I said, tell me one married couple that's actually in a Disney movie. Like show me, you know, And every single Disney movie, it's a single child who doesn't have parents. And so you talked about the romanticism. I've always had issues with Disney movies ever since I was a little kid. Something just didn't seem right. And it's like my parents are married and they're happy, and and they do stuff with my sister and I, and we're really happy. And how come all these movies just show this like chaos? And so we have actually we just do not let our children um, watch Disney movies. And and uh, so. It's so interesting that you say it because I think Disney has done a wonderful job, right, of portraying this romanticism that you talk about. What's the super popular Disney movie out there? It happened a couple years ago. Frozen. 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 You you look at all of these girls ages like five to ten, and they're like honest to goodness, it's like they're it's like some of them their lives had revolved evolved around that movie. I know multiple parents, their daughters are watching that movie every day. And they got the clothes and everything else, and I'm like, "What are we doing?" I mean, again, you know, you're you're highlighting, you know, two women who, you know, two daughters, right, who don't have parents, right? They're coming from this broken home. Um, the songs even expose how it's like, "Do whatever you want." What it really says is, uh, "Ignore all the rules and do whatever you want." And these kids are just singing it to the top of their lungs in their homes. Um, so, anyway, my, my point is, I I, uh, I believe that Disney is actually an invasion into your home of extreme negativity. Smile. So uh, thank you very much for, for explaining it to me in, in
2: terms I can understand. I, I did wanna say a, 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 a one thing about what Walt said is it, it's, it is interesting that every, like all these movies and songs, Jane Austen, if you're a Jane Austen fan, yeah, and I am, she's really good, but uh, like every, Novel ends at the marriage and the families that are depicted are usually really bad. They're just very kind of ugly marriages. So that it's the drama, all the drama is in like the courtship. Uh, How do you write a novel that's attractive about marriage and family? I think that's a challenge actually and it's not really been done. Well, I can think of a few, like maybe Cheaper Brother Dozen is a movie that people talk about, or yeah, but they, they stand out because they're so rare. Two greatest novels I know of that do this, and I mean classic novels, is uh, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, is one, and Wendell Berry's novel Henna uh, Coulter is another. Both beautiful novels that bring family into the story and present it in an attractive way. There's an attractive part, unattractive part in Leo Tolstoy as well. Just so you're aware, we gave the
5: early definition
2: of romanticism um,
5: more from what I consider the philosophical bent, where going for the emotionalism of it rather than the um, uh, the good. Our entire culture does that. Like it's good. God gave us a desire to want to eat food, but we now are focused on you know, the pleasure of food, not the purpose of eating food. And and almost everything we do in our life, we're focusing on the emotional play. We're focusing
2: on the emotion of it and not the ultimate good that it should be pointing towards. Uh, I think about, you know, when I was dating, I just loved being in that relationship. But as soon as I started getting to know the person better, I was like, oh, you know, uh, it's time to move on. Right. Like, and so in this romantic thing, you're actually really in love. What you're really in love with is the ideal in your head. You're not really in love with the real concrete object. You're in love with the ideal you've made of them. So there's a kind of narcissistic quality to this romantic desire. I think about one of my favorite characters. Uh, I, I read a lot of fiction. It's something I love to do. If you've ever read The Wind in the Willows, which is, in my view, the greatest children's story ever, there's a character in there, Toad. He's the main character. And Toad is a romantic. First, it's the gypsy carriage, and then it crashes and he sees a motor car. He loves the motor car, before that it was the boats. Like As soon as he he just has a cycle of just addictive, my life is perfect when I have this thing. And through Toad, I think I see some people I know who are like this uh, in that key. They're just switching from hobby to hobby, like they get a new thing, a new toy, it's really fun for a while. They enjoy it but as soon as they consummate it, once the real thing comes out, They've got to move back into that
3: ideal world. I didn't grow up with Christ, nothing. you know. Got married 26, still had issues. Didn't really ha- understand what it was until I was around 40. And then it started to click in my head. You know, we've been married 25 years, but if you don't have faith, you're never going to make it anywhere. I mean, and, and it's a learning, it's like going to school and I uh, to where we are now it's we're just gonna get stronger
1: and stronger but that's the problem nowadays people aren't teaching their kids that need apply what you said to our to to our place in 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 um, in the church right now and I would simply describe it as so we've lost 75% who call themselves Catholics are gone by age 23 24 um, there's a lot of confusion, um, both the brain aspect and the heart aspect, and they're integrated, right, in the human person. Um, there's a reawakening of personalism, a reawakening, of personal relationship with Christ. Pope Benedict's relationship is the heart of ritual. It's the heart of relation. It's the heart of uh, religion. Um, a lot of folks, I think, are trending maybe toward an evangelical mode, maybe running the risk of missing the apostolicity, the roots. Uh, contemplative qualities and aspects. Um, I experience it. There's an emergence of a lot of great camps. We've never had more programs than ever before in history. Ever, we've never had more accessibility of programs. we have never more uh, on your phone or wherever you want to be. But the big question now is: Are we are we living at the culture question that you're you're talking about? You're a professor at a campus that is not Catholic, but you're seeing many people become Catholic. So. How do you see young people um navigating through that, if you will, quagmire to have a, f- a kind of a responsive faith that is rich and true and full with the landmine danger of romanticism and which might be kind of a evangelicalism apart from the anchor in the roots right yeah i, so I mean say,
2: you right it's a great question. I'm no authority on this right you are <laughs> this is uh your work um I think that what the, the work that you described that's going on is great work. Because these teenagers as face it, they're already primed, right? By, by the culture around them, to be distracted by these strong um, sort of elevating experiences all around them. And if they're not matching that to their faith in sort of a deep way, that's the danger, right? And, and, and not even a danger, I mean, I do think, that it's hugely important to have an intimate love for, to have that experience of an intimate love for Christ. If you don't have that, the whole thing's gonna not, it's not gonna last. But I also think that, you know, what I notice about the kids at, in Hillsdale anyhow, is that um, uh, we get a lot of the converts who come in who have had those emotional experiences and then they've kind of dried up. They've gotten in, they've seen other things, they've matured a little bit, and that, that first like emotional thing has dried up a little bit. But what they see is a lot of the, they they see something quietly beautiful in the catholic liturgy at saint anthony's that's just it like they've never seen that before and, and and they're kind of relieved by it right i don't have to gin up an emotional experience here i can just be quiet with god and turn myself over to him and not have to be anything but what god wants me right here and right now and i can rest in those sacraments and, and that liturgy and so that's what they tell me is that's just a deep attraction. To have a liturgy for them is a great gift for their spirituality. So again, I think the question really is how to evangelize, and I don't think there's one answer, I don't think there's one strategy, God works in our hearts in all kinds of different ways, but if you're talking about like a program of evangelization, obviously you want that first conversion experience with Christ, but I think in terms of long-term development, there is a question about how do I integrate this into my ordinary life? How do I do that? Thank you. Thank you
4: Nathan for your comments. I guess I was a little bit shocked though that somebody from Hillsdale College, the (laughs) college that prides itself on being the center of learning about American ideals and American history would come with a message that I think is one could characterize as anti-American and here's what I mean. So, when you think of the 19th century, you think of Horace Greeley's admonition, go west, young man. Or you think of Abraham Lincoln saying to the young young men of Illinois, you start off a laborer, then you're a mechanic, and then you run the business someday. And so it seems like a central part of what it means to be an American for a long period of time has been remaking ourselves. But you describe that as romantic and idealistic and
2: arguably a negative. So, great question. I think that there is an ordered way. I mean, remember what I did say. I did say ideal. In some sense, ideals are a fixture of human action. They are what make us human. And we are inspired by pictures we see, and they elicit from us great heroic acts. And I mean, God uses those. So uh, I'm not attacking having ideals. I am attacking a kind of idealism, right? The kind of idealism which says, for example, I'm biologically a male, but I can make myself a woman, right? Like, I can be whatever I want to be, I can do it. You can just be whatever you, like we're told that whatever you imagine. Pawn Little House in the Prairie, he's a little insane, right? I mean these are, be- have you read them? They're beautiful stories, right? I mean I love to read them to my kids. But the things he takes them, like he cannot settle, yeah. if they would have just stayed in the big woods for a little while, they had a beautiful family, they could have kept making stuff, growing stuff. If, if you notice, uh, they end very darkly. Like the last book's never included in the collection, if you've noticed. I'd leave it out, but I mean, they're like the, uh, uh, Alonzo and Laura's farm just collapses. He's basically bankrupt. It's just kind of ends that way. So Pa, in a strange way, and again, I'm, I love those books. But in a strange way, he kind of exemplifies this restless uh, constant desire to improve. And, he pull, and what he pulls his family through. Yeah, they wrote a beautiful story about it. But I think some of it's disordered. And I think Laura knew some of it was disordered. Um, So the question really, for each of us, I think every one of us has to ask, God, what are the ideals that are true that you're calling me true? Like, how do I discern that the the difference between an ideal and a false ideal, which is idealism? Uh, Blessed, or excuse me, St. John Paul
5: II is the one that coined the term personalistic norm in which the individual has a dignity that can never be taken away. And I think that we do not give, you were talking about media, advertisers. Advertisers are smarter than a lot of us in ways because they realize we, are made, we were made to seek out God. So all of us feel this emptiness inside. As Augustine says, it's, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But we don't, a lot of us don't understand that. And so the media tell us, well, you're not happy right now? Buy some stuff. And if you don't like that, buy some more stuff. And I deal with that in my classroom every day. I deal with boys who are ostensibly Catholic. But, you know, it's a hard time when I teach them philosophy and theology. But what I have to get them to realize is you weren't weren't brought up in the right way. Because you weren't taught about these things, you weren't taught that the that what you have to seek is God and not more stuff. So we're we're fighting that. There's that dichotomy in our in our society for and and one of the reasons that I was drawn to this program with the schleiders was we can take and make a difference in this by taking couples and teaching them and getting them to go out into their parishes and to other couples and maybe turning this around so that children don't
3: automatically reach for more stuff so being a father of ten children i have really focused on them serving others because he says if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven you need to be leased and you need to serve so you know I, I just think that is critical that our kids get the mindset of serving others and get their, their minds off themselves and so in doing that, they evangelize. Why? Because they see something different in our kids that they're not seeing in the culture. And so that's been, I mean, that's been paramount from, from day one in the vision that God gave us for our home is to is to serve and to minister to others, you know, be a blessing. If if we were gonna go over to somebody's house, even when they're little, if we we're gonna go over and be invited to somebody's house, if they're crazy enough to have that many children in their home. God bless him. And I did. I said, you kids leave that home in better shape than it was th- when you came in. I said, you, you can clean come up the toilet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. that, that was the point. At four. <laughs> that was the point. I mean, hopefully they'll invite I, us back. I think
2: that's really uh, profound. And I take that to heart, actually. I think about uh, you know, Whitney Houston's, you know, it's very sad, right? She has this great music career and this great song, right? The greatest love of all uh, was her big hit and it's about loving herself. Um, But but, she she does end up killing herself by drug overdose. So it wasn't enough, right? I mean she was trying, so these people who love each other, love themselves, really don't love themselves, that's the thing. And you can't love yourself until you make yourself a self gift, right? Man never finds himself except through self-gift. And we think about this with our kids. You know, It's something my parents were really good at. So my view would be, I would say that that's just worth considering. Are you building a family culture rooted in prayer? But it's got to be more than just, if I just get them praying, then things are fine. What other sorts of things are you doing together to build friendship with your kids um, that's not just in that context, but extends into other contexts?
0: Kingdom builders are parishioners and pastors committed to the kingdom more fully coming alive within us and through us. We are moved by Jesus' challenge of the Lord's Prayer. He would not have asked us to pray, Thy kingdom come, without providing the means to fulfill it. If you are moved to be united with a growing number more fully engaging in missionary Catholicism, find out more at massimpact.us and click on the tab that says Kingdom Builders. If you would like to hear other engaging and challenging programs, please go to our podcast site at IgniteRadioLive.com. God bless you.